It is great to be with you all, and uh, this afternoon, uh, Cademan, I'm going to grab hold of the slides here for a second, because I want to turn back to He Will Hold Me Fast. I think it's a, a good way to introduce our passage today, and, and um, the first verse, when I fear my faith may fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, He will hold me fast. I could never keep my love, right, on life's fearful path because my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. But what a, what a hope that we have in the gospel that our faith is not... We, we were hearing it this weekend from Pastor Rod Santiago that our faith, it's not the greatness of our faith. It's not the, the mightiness of our faith. Our faith connects us to Jesus, who's the one who's great and mighty and sufficient to save us. What well, we just sang, all sufficient merit, that we're looking at this, this subject this afternoon in 1 John 5, 1 to 5, of faith that overcomes the world. And we're going to see that for John, true faith always leads to love for God and love for others, and true love always results in obedience and this is the kind of faith that overcomes the world true faith rather than false faith not mature faith rather than immature faith not strong faith rather than weak faith i I think that very often as christians we we get this impression that 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 we are overcoming the world to the extent that our faith is great but that's not how it works. You remember Peter uh, walking on the water with Jesus. Jesus said, come on, step out, walk on the water with me. And Peter begins to walk and he gets his eyes off Jesus and he, he starts sinking and he says, Lord Jesus, help me. And then Jesus picks him up and says, oh, you of little faith. It was when Peter got his eyes off of Jesus and looked to the water and stopped believing altogether. But it wasn't, it wasn't that Peter had this massive faith. Jesus said, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. And so I hope that this encourages your hearts. Because if you're like me, I often feel like my faith isn't that great. That, that I'm believing these things, but man, it's not like, oh man, I have this massive amount of faith. No, very often my anxiety betrays me. My worry, my fears betray me. My lack of courage betrays me. My my getting frustrated with circumstances of life and trying to fix everything myself and then having these unmet expectations that lead me to just murmur and complain and, you know, bark at the children and all those things that you would never do, but I do. What does that reveal? Well, it reveals that my faith is weak, for one thing. It reveals that I'm not trusting in my Father in heaven who's sovereign over all things and that I'm being anxious for silly things. And I need to be reminded again that to be anxious for nothing, but in all things cast my cares upon the Father because it matters to Him about me. And so we're going to see this here in 1 John 5. In fact, let's read it together. Just five short verses. 
And John is landing the plane here, as it were. He's finishing the letter. He's coming to his conclusion from the earlier part of the letter. But he says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. And by this we know we love the children of God when we love and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that's overcome the world. Our faith. And who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Now John seems to be leaning into some military imagery here with the use of the word overcome. God is pictured as a king or a commander-in-chief to whom we must submit our loyal obedience in verses 2 and 3. Jesus is given as the righteous cause that drives us forward in verses 1 and 5, and our opponent is the world, verses 4 and 5, and because of the overwhelming forces against us, God's demands can seem rigorous, verse 3, and why he says they're, they're not, even though they might seem rigorous, they're not oppressive, they're not burdensome. Why? Because they come from his love for us, his desire for us to overcome, to be victorious. And because of our loyalty to God's leadership as king, as commander, and our belief in our cause, John assures us, we are going to overcome the world. We are going to have the victory, verses 4 and 5. And so John is ending this letter, landing the plane of his sermon, as it were, with an illustration, with this military imagery to one last reminder, summing up everything he's been talking about in the whole letter. In fact, we heard this last week from Jason over and over about what it looks like. What are these marks of love and what it, the, the implications of the Father's love in our lives and, and what it means for us as Christians. And so now John is going to say, <coughs> you have a faith that overcomes the world. This world that's been our enemy earlier in the letter, the, the, what we were told not to love the world or anything in the world because the things of the world are passing away. And so you could imagine sitting in that church they had gone through some sort of split. There were some false teachers that left that went out from us because they were not of us and they drug people with them. And as I mentioned before, the, the people remaining are wondering, were we on the right side of this? Did we, did we remain? Did, did we do the right thing? And, and John encourages them, no, you're believing the gospel. This same gospel that was entrusted to me as an eyewitness that I beheld his glory. I touched him. I saw these things concerning the word of life, and I've given them to you, and they're holding fast to this. And now the next question that's going to arise is, okay, if I'm holding fast to the gospel, and I'm believing in Jesus, and, and are we actually going to overcome? Are we going to win? Remember, the letter is all about assurance. Assurance of salvation. He, he says later in this chapter, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Experientially, deep down at the deepest part of who you are, you would have a, an assurance that you have eternal life. 
And part of that assurance is you're going to overcome the world. And so, Paul, I'm John, Paul, Paul didn't write this. John wrote it. John begins in verse 1 by saying, both faith, our faith, and our love, the kind of faith that overcomes the world has to be a faith connected to love. And the object of that faith and the object of that love is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we, and we can't separate the two, faith and love. Jesus Christ is the object of our faith. Turn back to chapter 4, verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And then a little bit later, chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. And whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. This is incredible. Jesus is the object of our faith. The Spirit of God is pointing us to Jesus. And when we believe this gospel concerning Jesus, God the Father abides in us and us in Him. All of the triune God is abiding in us by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, according to John in chapter 4. That should bring incredible comfort. What this means, beloved, is you are not alone. You're not alone. You're not alone in your struggles. You're not alone in your trials. You're not alone with, without companions, without comforters. You may feel it, but you're not. If you believe this gospel, you have the triune God making their home in you, abiding in you, and you in them. This is not only an intellectual element of faith, and there is an intellectual element. We have to be believing these things. But there's also this great affection, this, at the level of our desires and our motives and our will, this longing to please God because of what He's done in Jesus. This is what it means to be saved, and it's why faith and love are inseparable. It's not only believing that God the Father loves us and so loved the world He gave His Son, but it is now loving the Father for giving His Son and loving the Son for dying for us and loving the Spirit for shedding abroad the Father's love in our hearts. And because we love God and we're like God, as we heard last week, and, and God is abiding in us and people see the Father's love in us and through us, now we have this ability this reality this motive to love one another and that's why john is bringing it back full circle and so there's this verse one everyone who believes that jesus christ jesus is the christ has been born of god now notice he doesn't say will be born of god everyone who believes that jesus is the christ will be born of god no that's not what he says he said, if you are believing that Jesus is the Christ, you already have been born of God. You don't have to fear that you're not in, that you have to do something else, that you're not going to make it because, you know, you're from Vallejo. 
if you have believed that Jesus is the Christ, you have been born of God. You're part of His family. You're one of His children. You have the new birth. And as a result, everyone who loves the Father loves anybody who's been born of Him. We, we, we have this, this instinctual family love now for one another. I love to go teach overseas, train pastors, visit Christians in completely different contexts. And I've had the blessed privilege of doing it for many years now. And, and what always strikes me is the immediate kindred love we have for one another. We don't have to make it up. We don't have to invent it. Now, there might be individuals who are a little bit ornery and are hard to love. But by and large, as Christians, because we're part of the family of God and the Spirit of God is dwelling in all of us, and we love the Father, we love all those who've been born of Him. Now, what does it mean to believe? What does it mean to believe? Well, in Romans 10.9, Paul says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. That's the verse that brought me to faith when I was nine years old. Because I thought I had to do something. I was talking to this summer camp leader, uh, a dear woman named Luella Ross, who went to Valley Bible Church and taught Sunday school for years. She volunteered as a camp counselor. And I was asking her, well, I don't, I don't know what, what do I have to do? What do I have to do? And she says, you believe. And what does believe mean? Well, she shared this verse with me. And it goes on to say in verse 10, for with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So with our hearts we believe and as a result we're justified. We're declared righteous before God. We're welcome into His presence. And with our mouth we confess that Jesus is Lord and we're saved and delivered from the judgment that we deserved. John had said it in his Gospel quoting Jesus in John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. If you're believing in Jesus, you possess, you have eternal life. And whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is at the heart of the good news. Jesus came to die in our place for our sins so that we could be delivered. And we receive His salvation, not by works, not by what we do, but by believing upon Him. Believing that He died for our sins. Trusting Him. To put it another way, we stop trying to be the king of our kingdom. And we bow the knee to Jesus as king and say, I want to be a part of your kingdom. And it's no longer, my kingdom's a mess. I repent of trying to be God in my life. And I want Jesus to be the king of my life and tell me how to live and tell me what to do because that's eternal life. Amen. And so faith and love, when we have faith, it's, we heard it this weekend at the family camp, Pastor Rod was going through Colossians 1 and 2 and talking about just as you receive Jesus, so walk in Him. But it's, it's not even faith in our faith. It's not that our faith is strong. No, our faith is in Jesus He's the object and He's the one who saves us. Our faith connects us to Him. Then John uh, goes on to say in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 5 that there's love and obedience connected together. You cannot separate love and obedience. By this we know we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. 
For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. And I would say this is a faith-driven obedience. If faith and love cannot be separated and love and obedience cannot be separated, you have this chain, don't you, of faith, believing, leading to motive, love, which then leads to an action, obedience. My dad's not here today. I can pick on him a little bit. When we were teenagers, we had to do chores in the Rippy household. Now, I don't know about you teenagers, but when I was a teenager, I didn't like to do chores any more than my teenagers like to do chores. But my dad would say, you're going to do the dishes and you're going to do it with a smile on your face. Now, his desire was to get us to have a motive to understand that the reason we're doing the dishes is we're serving our family. It's more blessed to give than to receive. We should be happy to serve our mom and dad, to serve our siblings, to, to do this, to be a contributing member of our family, you know, and hopefully a contributing member of society. <laughs> I mean, that's a little heavy-handed, but, you know, you're, you're going to do this and with a smile on your face. And so what would we do? Oh, we would plaster a smile on our face, but it was the fakest smile you ever seen. It was a Cheshire cat smile. Like, it might have been a big grin, but inside we were not smiling one bit. That's not what we're talking about here at all. When we talk about obedience to God the Father, it is not I'm going to grit my teeth and bear it because God demands it. No. It is with this desire that my dad had that we understand we've been loved so much that the Father gave His best when we were at our worst. He gave us His Son when what we deserved was His wrath. And now He's brought us into the family. And He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And He's given us forgiveness and life and, and joy and happiness and peace in the midst of our circumstances. And that love of Christ that we see on display at the cross, that the Spirit of God stirs up in our hearts, it causes us to say, Whatever you want, I'll do. I'm yours. I'm happy to do it. It's not too much to ask. His commands are not burdensome. It's faith-driven obedience. John is arguing once more that love for others is grounded in the love of God. He had said it throughout the epistle. I'm not going to run through all the verses. But, but chapter 4, verse 19, perhaps, is... is what I'm getting at the heart of. Jason handled this so well. Verse 18, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment. <clears throat> and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love, verse 19, because He first loved us. The reason we love one another, the reason that we no longer have this sense of fear before God the Father who loves us is He's shown His perfect love in His Son and it's cast out fear. We don't love now so that we could be a part of the family. We love because we're a part of the family. This is what He's done for us. And the motive at the level of the motives is, is where John is getting to. And why does John do this? Because this is what he learned from Jesus. Turn back to the Gospel of John chapter 14.
John chapter 14, verse 15. Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give to you another helper to be with you forever. Down to verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Verse 24. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word you heard is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Jesus says this is, this is the key to obeying God, to obeying Jesus is love at the level of motives. Let me give you an example. If all we do is write up a list of God's commands, maybe 10 of them, we put them on tablets of stone, and we put them before the people, and we say, you obey these 10 commands, and you're good. You don't obey them, you're in deep doo-doo. That's the way it goes. Well, you can't keep the Ten Commands perfectly because you sin, I sin. We have the world, the flesh, and the devil against us, and so then we look at the measuring stick and we say, I can't do it. I can't do it. I, I haven't done it. I've failed. Well, this is what the whole New Testament says is that that old covenant that was based upon law, those Ten Commandments, was never intended to save or deliver anybody. All it could do is shut them up under sin and condemn them. Jesus comes and He says, I've come to bring a new covenant. One where the law is not written on tablets of stone, it's written on the tablets of your heart. And now, when you obey, it's not merely checking the box of the Ten Commands or Twenty Commands or, in the New Covenant, Two Commands. Love God and love your neighbor. No, it's at the motive. It's at the heart level of desires and will and affections. That's going to drive your obedience. Are you believing that Jesus is your Savior? Well, then you're going to love Him. And if you love Him, you're going to obey Him. That's what Jesus said. And so John repeats it in 1 John. And this includes, according to John, loving one another. You cannot love God and love Jesus without loving one another. Chapter 3, verse 11, back in 1 John. This is the message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. He says then in chapter 4, verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Love for God, love for others are interrelated. John spent a whole chapter, chapter 4, talking about this. Introduced it in chapter 3. And he says that love for God and love for one another, it feeds and strengthens the other as you love god more you want to love his people more as you love his people more you want to love him more love grows more love love is amazing that way i may have used this illustration before but i have five children i had my first gavin a boy and then i had my second delaney a girl and then you got the perfect american family of a boy and a girl and then you have a third and what do you do with your third 
Well, you end up having five, and he's the middle child, and he's, you know, ignored and neglected, right? That's what you do with middle children. <laughs> he's not even here to appreciate it. That's how much we're ignoring and neglecting him. No, I actually had this fear because, you know, it's easy when you get a boy and a girl, and you think, well, I love them in different ways because boys are different than girls, and, and, and it's, not a, it's not a conundrum, but then I had another boy, and it's like, am I going to love this boy as much as I love the other kids? This misunderstanding as a young dad that I only have this amount of love and somehow I'm dividing it. But that's not how it works. You find out pretty quickly, I love this boy as much as I love my other children. And when I get another child, I love them as much as I love the first ones. That love grows more love. That love has this capacity to just keep growing. Well, it's no surprise. Because where does love come from? It comes from God who is love. And we can't even know how high and wide and deep and long the love of God is. But Paul tells us, oh, that you would know it so you'd be filled with all the fullness of God. Ephesians chapter 3. And so as we love God, our desire to love one another grows. And then as we love one another, our love for God grows and it just feeds upon one another in a glorious, beautiful way. This is what... John is getting at he says that what the the fruit of this love the result of this love is obedience to God and you know that a lot of the commands in the New Testament are the one another's to take care of one another to to be at peace with one another to minister to one another to bear one another's burdens to to confront one another in love when you see each other in a trespass to to, to serve one another, to meet one another's needs, on and on and on, over and over. It's at the heart of our church covenant as a church is to practice those one another's, which is the manifestation of love. Augustine, the church father who lived in the 400s, commenting on this passage said, to love the children of God is to love the Son of God. And to love the Son of God is to love the Father. Nobody can love the Father without loving the Son, and anyone who loves the Son will love the other children as well. Pretty clever, isn't it? <laughs> if we love God, we love His children. We love His Son, first and foremost, but we love His other children as well. And that's us. Verse 3, back in 1 John 5, this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. John Stott, in his commentary, says, love for God is not an emotional experience so much as a moral commitment. That's why he says this is the love of God, in verse 3, that we keep His commandments. Love reveals itself in actions, in, in verbs, in doing things. In, in this context, our love for God and love for others is what it means to keep His commandments. That's why Jesus said, all of the Old Testament law hangs on these two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Obedience, however, does not always bring cheer to our hearts. So a profound statement follows, His commands are not burdensome. God's laws are not oppressive or 
crushing. They're not a terrible weight that we cannot bear in Christ. Now, apart from Christ, if we think we're just going to obey God's laws on our own, yeah, they're that cornerstone that, as it were, that stone of offense, the stone of stumbling that crushes us, that Jesus Christ demonstrates. He bore our sin in His body on the tree because we couldn't keep God's law. But now that we're in Jesus and now that we have the Spirit of God helping us, His laws are not burdensome. They're not oppressive. God gives the Christian grace to be able to live up to the standard, as it were. How does He do it? Well, He gave us a substitute, Christ, who kept the standard perfectly because we never could. And He's placed us into Jesus so that when the Father looks at us, He no longer sees our sin. He sees the perfections of His Son. And He hasn't left us as orphans. He's given us His Spirit to put sin to death, to obey the Father, to stir up family affection so that we do obey Him. That's why John had said in 1 John 4, 4, greater is the one who's in you than the one who's in the world. That's connected to this passage, isn't it? Because we have a faith that overcomes the world. Why? Because the Spirit of God is dwelling in us and we're not alone. This is why Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden in Matthew 11, and I'll give you rest. Come, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm gentle and lowly in spirit. My burden is easy. My yoke is light. A bruised reed I won't break. A smoldering wick I won't put out. This is really good news. Are you weary and worn out from life? Are you tired of the burdens of trying to carry it all yourself? Come to Jesus. His burden is easy and His yoke is light. And in Him you find rest for your soul. This is what He promised. God's commands in Christ are not burdensome. They're a delight. That's why John then finishes up tying obedience and faith back together like a circle. And he says, obedience and faith as they're tied together it equals victory. If you've been born of God, verse 1, if you are believing in Jesus and you have been born of God, you're able now to keep God's commands because you've been given power by God to overcome the world. Again, the world is this human world system at war with God and His people. We're told in chapter 2 not to love the world or anything in it. And the things that are from the world are the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. And they're not from the Father, they're from the world and they're all passing away. We're told in chapter 3, verse 13, do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. It hated Jesus. But he says here in chapter 5, Verse 4, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. I don't know, does your translation say some? It better say everyone. There's no translation I know of that says some who've been born of God overcome the world. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. That's good news. That means, brothers and sisters, you're going to overcome the world. You have overcome the world. 
You might not feel like it because you got sin that remains. Maybe even sins that you hold on to, that you hide from others, that you don't confess. And it tears you up inside. It makes you feel like, I don't deserve the salvation. Maybe I'm not a part of the kingdom of God. Maybe I've out the grace of God and he, God's just going to kick me out. If you're feeling that way, you need to turn to the cross and look to Jesus and remember who your Savior is and confess your sins. Love Him. Cling to Jesus. He's the one who saves and delivers you. And you hope in the promises of God regarding His Son. You have hope and you cling to those promises that it says here, everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. I don't feel like I'm going to overcome and make it. But God, you promised right here that everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world and experiences victory that overcomes the world. And I love what John says, lest you be confused by what he's been saying already. He does not say the victory that overcomes the world is your works. He doesn't say the victory that overcomes the world is your great strength, your spiritual push-ups. Your piety. What does he say? What's the faith that what's the victory that overcomes the world? Our faith. Why? Our faith connects us to Jesus, who has won the victory. And so it's it's all to him. It's that new song we learned: all sufficient merit is found in him. He's an all-sufficient Savior. He's able to save and deliver to the uttermost. Doesn't matter where you are or what you've done, He saves and delivers. Not just in the future, today, right now. He can deliver you. He's near to the brokenhearted, He's gentle and lowly in spirit. He knows how to comfort those who are without comfort, He knows how to minister to those who are weary and sick and sore of sin. This is what he does. He's the great physician. He's the good shepherd of the sheep who lays down his life. He's the one who's loved you with an infinite love. And if you're tempted to doubt it, you look to the cross where he died and he was buried and he rose again on your behalf. This is the victory that overcomes the world. And victory, it could be understood in a couple different ways. You read the commentaries, it could mean Christ's once-for-all victory on the cross over Satan's sin in the world. That's what I've been getting at. It could be, in the context, these Christians' victory over the heretics, the false teachers that he was talking about in chapter 3. It could be the victory that occurs at conversion of an individual Christian. And it's hard to know what John had in mind because he talks about all of those things in his letter. Could mean he thought of all of those things. And, and we do know that ultimately scripture teaches all those elements are included in our final victory but john here uses the present tense for victory this is the victory not will be the victory no it's true it will be a victory when we see jesus chapter 3 verse 2 we're going to be like him we're going to see him as he is all things are going to be made right We could turn to Revelation and just wallow in the goodness of what it means that there's no more tears, no more sin, no more sickness, no more death, no more wars. Hallelujah. 
But John here doesn't say there, this will be the victory. He says this is the victory that overcomes the world right now. Right now. And you know how he does it? He does it in the lives of his children. By faith. As you put sin to death, as you obey him, as you love the brothers and sisters, as you serve the church, as you share the gospel, as you're just going about doing the ordinary things of the Christian life, that is the victory that overcomes the world. You know how I know that? Because if it wasn't for Jesus and it wasn't for the Holy Spirit, you and I wouldn't be Christians today. The only reason we're still believing this gospel is because of what Jesus has done and what the Spirit is doing. That's it. The victory is already won. In verse 1, belief in Jesus is emphasized. In verse 5, Jesus as the Son of God is affirmed. And the faith is the victory. If you put faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you already are overcomers. That's what John said. Turn back to chapter 4, verse 4. Little children, you are from God, and you have overcome them. For he who's in you is greater than he who's in the world. Paul, he understood this same thing. Romans 8, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. We're more than conquerors. Paul, how do you be more than a conqueror? You're either a conqueror or you're not. Paul says, it's so good. What you have in Jesus is so good, you're more than a conqueror. It doesn't even make sense, but it's good. And God is the one who always gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We heard it in 1 Corinthians 15, read today. Verse 57. He's the one who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, these verses, Paul, uh, John didn't write them to make you worried or fearful that because you struggle with sin in your lives that maybe you're not an overcomer. That's how it's been taken at times. That if you still struggle with sin, if you still battle these things, you're not an overcomer. But that's not why John is writing it. It should be a matter of encouragement because in spite of our struggle with sin in our daily lives, the victory has already been won by Christ. Our salvation is secure in Jesus. And verse 5 says, Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? What does that include? All Christians, all those believing that Jesus is the Son of God are overcoming the world. That's great encouragement and great hope. And so this is the faith that overcomes the world. And so, dear brother or sister, when you fear that your faith will fail, as we sang, Christ will hold you fast. When the tempter would prevail, Christ will hold you fast. This is the good news, and so you cling to that. You cry out to Him. You pray to Him. You plead to Him. You ask Him to send the Spirit to do His work of giving you a greater love for Jesus than the love for the sin in your life. You confess your sin. And you repent of it. And you don't wallow in your sin, but you turn from it. 
And if you fall down back on your face into that sin, you get back up and you look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. And as many times as you fall down, you just keep getting back up and looking to Jesus, confessing that sin and clinging to Him and trusting that you are overcoming the world. And if you don't believe it in your heart, you read the Scriptures and you cling to what the Scriptures are saying. Because they're greater than our heart. And God is greater than our heart. And our heart can deceive us and Satan is a liar. And he would want you to believe that you have out the grace of God. You've done it one too many times. Now there's no hope for you. Might as well give up. No. Your Father in heaven so loved you, He gave His Son. And the Son loved you. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live what? By faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We don't have a verse where the Holy Spirit loves us, but we have a verse, Romans 5, 5, where the Spirit is the one who sheds abroad the love of God into our hearts. And so he loves us too, doesn't he? He makes known to us the Father's love in our hearts. And so all of the triune God is loving you and making known that love so to stir up family affection so that you would cry out, Abba, Father, so that you would love Jesus, so that you would love the Spirit and want to keep in step with Him and turn from sin. And John says, I write these things to you so that you know you have eternal life. Because the world, your enemies, the flesh and the devil, they're going to try to tell you you don't have eternal life. John is connecting true faith with this supernatural love resulting in obedience that we could never do on our own. But ultimately, it's not up to us and our doing, is it? It's up to leaning upon, resting upon everything that Christ has done. And our faith, which is the victory that overcomes the world, connects us to Jesus who saves and delivers. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word and this time. As we turn to your table now, may it just be a sweet time of joy, a sweet time of communion. Thank you for everything we have in Jesus. May you minister to the hearts of your children. I don't know what they're all going through today. I don't know the cares of the life that would, of this world that would weigh them down. But may your word be like a, just a cool, refreshing cup of water on a hot day. May it be like the balm of Gilead bringing healing to the soul. Do this, I pray, Father. Through your spirit, minister to your children. Show them the beauty of their Savior, Jesus, his all-sufficient merit. In Jesus' name, amen.